You are going to be listening to Comstock Radio.、Uh, in the following show, we will be talking about our special guest, Niccolo Colombo, who is a researcher in machine learning with a background in theoretical physics.、Uh, other news that we will be talking about iOS boot ROM exploit that is completely unpatchable,、um, and Cybersecurity Awareness Week,、uh, Month. So stay tuned for that. Welcome to Comstock Radio. I'm John Samuels, the host. With me, my co host, William Campany. Hello. <laughs> And our special guest, Niccolo Colombo. Hello.、Um, Niccolo, if you could move the mic closer to your mouth. Okay. Hello. Hello. <laughs> right. So, as we mentioned before the last song, we were going to go over not only the research that our extinguished Distinguished guest Nicola Colombo has done in the past. Oh, come on, distinguished. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it will be interesting.、Um, and then we'll touch later in the show on some recent news. So, Nicola Colombo,、uh, let me just introduce him. He's been,、uh, say, from September 2013 to September 2016, he was a research associate in machine learning and systems control at the Luxembourg Center for Systems Biomedicine. Exactly.、Um, after that, well, he graduated in physics at an Italian university that I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of. Come on, try.、Uh, <laughs> so,、uh, apologies. Università degli Studi. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. And、um, yeah, he actually obtained a PhD in theoretical physics at the University of Mons in Belgium in 2012. Uh, and an interesting thing that I've noticed as someone who's from Texas is that you actually worked for six months、uh, at the Texas AM Department of Physics and Astronomy. That- I don't tell you why I, I left Texas. <laughs> yeah, that, please don't. <laughs>、um, so tell me about your PhD, for example. I, I want to get some physics in the show. Yeah, that was a crazy, crazy topic because mm, mm. we were working on string theory and gravitational theory. So,、mm. the, the problem, the main problem there is that、uh, gravity and quantum mechanics are kind of in, incompatible. And so, now people are trying to develop even more complicated theory than Einstein gravity to make them compatible. So, one solution is string theory. Then、mm. you have all. The,、uh, string theory can explain everything, but it's so complicated that you cannot do anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So,、uh, yeah, I was working on a, a, like a simplified、uh, approach to string theory. But、mm. and after a while, I realized that what I was doing was uh, uh, kind of understood by. 20 people in the in- entire world. <laughs>、right. So,、okay. my PhD was about how, what can you measure、mm. uh, to verify these k i n d of theories.、Okay. But that was from the theoretical point of view. So, w- how you can build something that is observable? Then, the, the, pro- the main problem is that these observables,、mm-hmm. you should go to the lab and create the condition to make them. And、okay. For string theory, at least, it, 
it's proven that it's impossible with all the technology we have now to reach <coughs> energies that are high enough to, to show that the string theory is true. So, so could you just give a brief overview of what string theory actually is and, and why do you need such massive amounts of energy to, to prove these theories? Okay, uh, string theory is just a, a revolution on what, how you, you think about particles because instead of, uh, the particle is like a zero-dimensional thing, it's, it's a point. Okay. And all the theory, so it's, it's at one given point at a certain time. And, but a string is a one-dimensional object. So when you track the, the trajectory of a particle, you draw a line. Mm -hmm. When you track the trajectory of a string, it is a one-dimensional object, you get a sheet. Right, OK. So imagine how can the theory build on that can be complicated. Okay, because okay. everything you do with particles can, can be redone starting from this assumption that instead of having a point, you have a, like a, a, an actual string moving around. Okay, okay. But you have a lot more degrees of freedom, and then you use these degrees of freedom to adjust what you cannot explain only with particles. That's okay. why I was saying that uh, string theory can explain everything, but it's so hard. Okay. To, uh, to to do any kind of calculation that it's really really impractical right okay and um i guess moving from there uh obviously you had a very strong background in theoretical theoretical physics but now uh you're a researcher at the university <laughs> of or sorry royal holloway university of london in the computer science department um with us with a focus on machine learning. Um, so maybe you can actually, can you explain why exactly uh, you moved from physics to machine learning? Yeah, that, that was, that happened in Texas actually. <laughs> okay. After my PhD, I, I moved to Texas. To the <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing. <laughs> that's I, a good thing. I, I got inspired by the, <laughs> <laughs> the barbecues and then. Right. And then I turned vegan and I turned <laughs> to machine learning. <laughs> right. Um, yes, uh, what I was doing is was really, really theoretical. So I was just doing math all the time. And I never ran a simulation before the, the end of my PhD. So everything mm -hmm. was pen and paper. Uh, so. So completely alien to our computer yes. science re wow. listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I have to confess that the, my background in, in physics helped me a lot in learning uh, quite quickly uh, to do machine learning things. Okay. Um, the switch was because uh, I realized, as I, uh, I told you before, that uh, that was a really, really crazy world, and that I, I didn't want to spend my life on doing something that like 20 people can understand. Mm. And this is the, <laughs> the main impact on, right, right, uh, right. on the society. And, and I guess that speaks a lot just about computer science in general, of 
we kind of have our hands in everyone's pies. Right. I mean, mo most STEM subjects do have a heavy uh, computer science component to them. Yeah, we are slowly physics. turning into one of those subjects, sort of like maths or English, mm. where suddenly yeah. it is getting to the core of every other subject mm -hmm. for some mm -hmm. reason they will well not for some reason they will all be involved mm -hmm. and I, that's maybe a little concerning from a student's perspective because you know more people are getting into computer science which is great you know you love to spread the word of computer science but at the same time it's not everyone's little, cup of tea is it that is true but you know just imagine you know the job market and five to ten years there's going to be a lot of computer scientists um, and whether or not we can sustain the job growth that we have with that you know that will determine whether or not our skills will be as valuable as they are today if you want to be a teacher this is a good thing <laughs> yeah. I think I'm, I'm here because of this like uh, popularity of, um, well of course they, they need a lot of people teaching mm -hmm. all this uh, motivated young mm. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. computer and scientists and, and so yeah I think that plus the society is creating more and more jobs on, oh, on, yeah. on the field yeah so uh, uh, we shouldn't be worried about mm, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> this, this is wave true. that is true and uh, going back to your background in physics from the physicists that I've spoken to um, it seems like most physicists are really interested in machine learning for some reason. Can, can you explain that? Uh, now, I think that machine learning is entering uh, on all scientific fields and also in, in physics because uh, it can help a lot in uh, polishing the output of the of all experiments. I think that from on the accelerator in, in Switzerland, the CERN. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that you couldn't do anything without machine learning that is like uh, taking care of the huge amount of data that you you get mm. at each experiment mm. and without machine learning this would be really really hard mm -hmm. and plus uh, people are using also machine learning to to, to do some uh, good to choose a good setup for the experiment before running the experiment because we know that this kind of experiment can be really really expensive so uh, it's a waste of time and money to try all the co configuration that you can mm -hmm. already like predict that they are not going mm -hmm. to be the good ones right right uh, and, and not to interrupt but this really does tie into the broader subject of data science so those of you who don't know what I guess AI, machine learning, and data science are. The data science really is the study of just big data. So when you, you any applications, in this case physics, you do have scenarios where you just have these massive amounts of data, and you need some way to quickly and efficiently process this data to actually get meaningful results from it. Um, AI, or I would say I, I go into machine learning, which is a subset of AI or artificial intelligence that mainly statistical in terms of making meaningful predictions from data. AI itself can be from rule-based to expert systems um, and also includes machine learning. Those of you that are interested in finding out what those are, I would recommend consulting Google. But yeah, to, to, to continue with um, your background in 
uh, theoretical physics. You actually went from theoretical physics to biology and applications of machine learning and biology. So do you want to talk about your work in that field? Yes, it was a machine learning group uh, in a biology uh, institution, uh, this biomedicine. Mm -hmm. They were doing research on Parkinson's disease, but okay. uh, my work was mainly on uh, DNA and uh, sequence analysis, this kind of thing. Then, of course, you have big data. So, mm -hmm. and also there, uh, experiments can produce a lot of uh, data that you should like uh, analyze because the ninety-nine percent is like uh, rubbish, and mm -hmm. you try to. The role of machine learning there is to extract the, the information from uh, the sequence that you that you get and uh, from my background I think that uh, it helped me a lot to understand uh, all these maths that are behind uh, all the machine learning uh, models so uh, my supervisor gave me uh, a few papers and <laughs> he asked me I can you understand this? Because I can't, but it, <laughs> it sounds cool, and it would be nice to apply this to, to mm -hmm. the DNA uh, sequencing. Uh, so I opened the, the papers, and after like 10 minutes, I, I thought, oh, but this is almost the work I was doing before, so reading papers, understanding mm -hmm. equations, and, and trying to modify, to adapt to, to your situation. Mm -hmm. So I think that theoretical machine learning and theoretical physics are not that distant. So when you made that jump from physics to biology, did you um, originally go in with the intent of focusing on sort of supporting the study of things like DNA using machine learning? Or was that sort of something that, like you said, with your supervisor mentioning it, did that sort of come up as an opportunity for you? Before going there, I didn't know anything about biology and anything <laughs> about computer science. So uh, I was, I needed, let's say, to, to leave Texas, because, <laughs> let's say, because of personal reasons. Okay. <laughs> and so I applied a little bit in um, finance, biology, and things like this, mm -hmm. because people in, in my department told me, okay, we are good at, on math. And there are people around looking for pe for someone who can understand math. Uh -huh. And then I found this position. And I was happy about the, the application because uh, I felt immediately more active in the society. And then uh, this DNA application was not the only one, but it was uh, included in a big project about uh, Parkinson's disease. So. And then I, I work also on something that's slightly different, uh, like a network identification from biological data, gene expressions, kind of. Um, hmm. So uh, just quickly, can you summarize maybe some of the challenges you had um, applying machine learning to biology? Because we actually discussed this earlier about actually trying to find meaningful data mm -hmm. for uh, expressions 
like biological expressions? I think that the main problem about applying computer uh, machine learning to biology is that data in biology are so noisy that you can design super sophisticated methods that uh, works on uh, on your uh, synthetically generated data, and then you apply to real data from uh, from biology applications, and you realize that you get nothing. <laughs> and, and that's why in biology people are using uh, machine learning methods that are from the 80, because these are the m most simple and mm -hmm. the only that works on when you have a lot of um, amount of noise. So the challenge there for machine learning is to propose new things, but also make them uh, ro robust enough to work uh, on that setup and this is what I was doing to to try to we we picked a very can, let's say fancy uh, machine learning method and try to apply to this uh, applic DNA applications where people were still using things from from the 90s right right well that's it for now. We will have a short break to play some music. And when we come back, we'll be talking about a TFL paper that you produced. Okay. So stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Comstock Radio. I'm your host, John Samuels, with me, William Campany, and our guest, Niccolo Colombo. Um, we were just talking about Niccolo's background in theoretical physics um, and biology. Now we will talk about his work uh, to do with public transportation in TFL. Oh, yeah. So if you could just explain how, the general, uh, introdu like a yeah. general introduction to the paper. How I came to working with uh, mm. Transport for London is after a postdoc in Luxembourg about biology, uh, let's say again that uh, uh, I wanted to, to leave Luxembourg because Luxembourg <laughs> is a strange country. After <laughs> it, it was small after three years. So okay. I, uh, I found a position in uh, UCL and it, that was on, on a project. And the project was about uh, uh, transportation networks. Uh, before in biology I was working on biological networks that are the networks mm -hmm. between uh, uh, represent the the interactions between genes in the cell and and so I switch a little bit the application field but the the, the idea is that there was still a, a process going on on a network mm -hmm. uh, okay so the the position was on a, a particular project and in collaboration with TFL. Right, right, right. Uh, and and also to take note of the fact that you were able to take the skills you learned uh, applying machine learning in a biological environment and use the, the exact same methods that you use there for, you know, this network problem you're, uh, you were investigating with TFL. and. Often, I think computer scientists are generally thrown into fields where they have no idea uh, what they may <laughs> be doing. But often, it's not really the sustenance of the of the field that really matters. It's just using the techniques. 
Yeah, if you pick a, a random uh, machine learning paper, then at the end you find the application sec section, the experiment. One experiment is in finance, one experiment is in, in biology, one in social networks. Normally mm -hmm. these are the... and But applying the same method. So you propose a method and then you apply to <laughs> to everything. Mm -hmm. This is good, I think. For, uh, it's a good aspect of oh, machine learning sure. and computer science in general. And yeah, and that's why these skills in computer science are so useful and versatile. Mm. It's really, as long as there's, in, with respect to machine learning, mm. as long as there's data, you can pretty much kind of throw machine learning at it. Obviously, that's an oversimplification, but that's kind of the you know, general rule for that, I would say. And to talk about yeah, the possibility in building a, a career, this is also good because you can, if you study computer science, you, then you can jump from one to the other mm -hmm. application field. But and then if you find one that you really like, then you can specialize a little bit more on the details of the application. For example, if uh, I liked that much biology, maybe uh, I would prefer to stick with biology and maybe uh, try to apply less sophisticated computer science things, but more on the specific domain to get uh, important results for biology. Because what I was interested before was, okay, I'm trying to get some result in machine learning and then apply, apply to biology, biology. But you can see on the other, the, the other mm. side. Uh, and and that doesn't just go for computer scientists. It can go for, you know, the the physicists listening or the biologists that are listening, where they do have to learn some computer science skills. Uh, you know, being able to manipulate data um, and program uh, manipulations, and they can take the same things that they learn from there and apply it to other problems that are yeah. completely outside uh, their primary study. Um, so yeah. let's. Talk Let's talk about, about the, the transport for yes. London. So uh, the data there, because when you talk about machine learning, good good ways to start with the data. What are what is the kind of data that you have, and what is the problem? So the data are the data generated by the Oyster card uh, machines. So every time you you take the the underground in london you tap your oyster card on on a machine and when you exit you also tap your oyster card and your oyster card is attached to uh, an id right uh, and there is a, a server recording all the transactions from where you enter and where you exit so the data are like a list of uh, journeys made by people with uh, an ID, the, the time they enter, the time they exit, and where they enter and where they, where they exit. And this is an amazing like, uh, set of data mm. compared to uh, what you get from biology, for example. So, so explain more why, why that is. It's so precise and it, mm. how much information you can get from uh, this kind of uh, data. Because, for example, you can just track a, a given ID without knowing the, the name uh, of the guy doing the journeys, but just track the ID and then you can understand 
more or less all uh, their life because you know where he's, <laughs> the, the guy is living, you know where the guy is working, you know where he, he used to, uh, to go in the weekend, everything. <laughs> well, that, that touches on the broader subject of privacy. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, um, but I'm guessing these identifiers are anonymous. Yes, right. uh, plus uh, TFL people were looking our papers every time we published something to make to sure s to spot that everything was uh, really well anonymized and mm. that we we specify at any line of the paper that we are not looking at the personal <laughs> life of people i mean but i'm sure from a machine learning perspective purely machine learning mm. perspective it probably would have been nice to have that type of data I'm sure you can infer other things about like maybe the route that someone is taking mm -hmm. or, um, and this is you know I'm just yeah the, here, one of the goal of the project was exactly to uh, make classes uh, of people to, to understand their their behavior inside the system because there is there are things that you cannot see immediately from this top in and top out mm -hmm. but if you do some statistics on this tap in and tap out, you know the the possibility. For example, how many paths you can follow from uh, to go to from A to B inside the underground network. Uh, the idea was to try to understand from the statistics that how people react to the changes in the network, how they they choose their path, for example, and how this is related to the the class of people they belong to. For and example, uh, f the striking difference between tourists and commuters. Right. Because tourists are, are going like, a, <laughs> like crazy, <laughs> while commuters are following the same mm -hmm. uh, input-output path uh, every day. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge amount of information that you can exploit, really. And I think TFL has already some uh, machine learning or a system that is exploiting this uh, information to, to make the, the service better. It's not like <laughs> uh, something that we, we should be like uh, afraid of, but because in principle mm -hmm. they use the data to make everything cheaper and, right. and working better and everything. And that was, I'm guessing, the main motivation of this paper. Yes, the main motivation was just to to predict. To, For example, you can predict how many uh, people are on, on a given train at uh, a certain time, and this helps uh, TFL to, to build, to, to add like a coach to, to the train mm -hmm. if this is and a lot of things like this. And, but the goal of the project was also to predict what happens when uh, something goes wrong on the network. So you close a station, so people cannot reach this station. So the, where are they going instead? Because mm. you know that this amount of people at that time in the day want to go uh, at station B, but B is closed, so they should choose a different station. See, but how is the dynamics of this uh, choice of new, uh, like a backup uh, uh, destination? 
Funnily enough, I just watched a documentary sort of lightly touching on that topic of what happens when stations close. Um, it was a pseudo-documentary made by BBC back in 2003 called The Day That Britain Stopped, where they, um, the whole premise is that all train providers went on strike for 24 hours and it just sort of highlighted the potential for catastrophe based on uh, how we're using our transportation system to the limit and how just taking out one or two lines or one or two stations can really really affect uh, the rest of people's lives mm. and um, how they're mm. able to get to work and stuff. So it's quite interesting. Is this something that was reflected in your work? Yeah, you can, you can see that uh, even tiny uh, closures can change completely the, the behavior of what you see exiting from one station or what you see uh, from the neighbor stations. And yeah, then data in that case are a bit noisy as well. It's right. not because, of course, when you close a station, this, is, this doesn't mean that from minute zero you don't see any, any exit. There are people like uh, going around, waiting <laughs> on the station right. for 20 minutes, and, or entering and then changing their mind and exiting. Mm. So th there is some noise also in, in this kind of data. So mm. that's why the, the problem is challenging. And I guess uh, maybe that's, that exemplifies the fact that, and, and this t touches on things like behavioral economics mm. and economics in general, where uh, it's very hard to predict human behavior. And even in this case, applying machine learning to try and predict what people will do uh, when something breaks. Um, you know, it's almost like something you can't predict very well with the data. I, I think it's impossible to, to predict <laughs> the people behavior. So mm -hmm. you can approximate it. And uh, you can approximate the, the behavior of like a, a big amount of people, not f for sure the single mm. behavior. I think this is, uh, okay, on average or with some error, I can mm -hmm. say something. But of course, I cannot reproduce the brain of uh, anyone right right maybe this is the the challenge for the, the for the future but yeah well maybe it's a good thing that we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. um and i imagine this type of these types of techniques could also be applied to uh, networks of roads right like people yeah of course this roads. is uh, at in our work we tried before to to build a model that is completely general mm -hmm. so given this kind of data where you know where people start, where people end, then you, you do some inference on, on the network to, to understand what happens inside the system, but this without referring to any underground. And then we, in the second part of the, of the work, there was this uh, application, direct application with the data with, that we had. But yeah, the, the approach normally, in, uh, at least in theoretical machine learning is to develop a method that is as general as possible. Right. And in this machine learning is, is close to physics because also physics is something that where you try to, to build a model that is as general as possible and then you specialize to uh, specific mm. things. And did you guys investigate any kind of like pre-predictions? -predict and what I mean by that is trying to predict, obviously you can predict the number of people and the flow of people yeah. at any given time, 
Yeah. Hopefully. Um, but I imagine with more data, such as where people are working, um, the times of days that they're out, say on weekends, for example, is it harder to predict the flow? Because I imagine maybe if you know that certain types of people are going to be have plans to go in different places, maybe the time of year, maybe it's Christmas, you know, or something like that, then the having that type of data would help you to better predict uh, the flow of people across these networks. Yeah, this is another aspect of machine learning, uh, at least modern machine learning, where you can throw in your model as much as many features you can uh, collect about people. And this, of course, it's making your uh, predictor uh, working better and better. Mm. Uh, yeah, this I think that is a bit the approach of uh, this deep uh, uh, neural net uh, right, things, right. and where you don't, in some sense, you stop thinking about what is really meaningful uh, for your problem because just put this I in the in the box uh, because for sure you don't make your box working uh, worse for sure mm -hmm. it, it will be there will be some improvement so th the more you you get the more mm -hmm. you put in the box and so you'd say this is the cutting edge where people are developing methods of just throwing data together and hopefully getting maybe another half a percent on their accuracy or something like exactly <laughs> right well um we'll have a short break for another song and when we come back we'll be talking about how you can get into machine learning some things that uh, you might you know want to do as a f first time things and then we'll touch on touch on the news that we mentioned at the top of the show Welcome back to Comsoc Radio. Uh, as you just heard, we had a lot of people listening to the show. We are obviously the reason for that. Uh, I just wanted to say that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you can also tweet at us at Insanity Radio with hashtag Comsoc if you want us to answer any questions or have any comments. Um, we'll hopefully give you a shout out. So uh, I'm your host, John Samuels. I have my co-host, William Company. Hello. And our guest, Niccolo Colombo, who is a researcher here at Royal Holloway. Hello. And yeah, we've just been talking about his background, his PhD in theoretical physics, then into his exploration and introduction into machine learning with biology and biotech, um, and then applying the same things that he learned from that uh, on issues with TFL. Um, so now uh, let's get into maybe an introduction to machine learning or at least a roadmap uh, into actually learning how to use machine learning, whether you, well, I imagine if you need this, you're probably a beginner. Um, and we also want to investigate some of the things that machine learning cannot solve and its limitations. So Niccolo here, he, well, you can explain for yourself, you, First, we're introduced to machine learning through biology. That's correct. Yes, that's that's correct. And, um, right, and and so what were some of the things that you learned, kind of being thrown into this field of machine learning? What are the what are the the most important things to understand when you're first getting into this? Um, maybe I mentioned this before, but I think that there are two things that 
one is to understand the data and what what is the information that you get from uh, each data point and and the second thing is that, that to have a clear idea of what is the problem that you uh, need to solve and then you can start thinking in your start your mathematical thinking about how mm. first you you translate your problem uh, from words to to math this is maybe the harder thing to do because it's not always evident how to formulate in a mathematical uh, fashion what uh, a general problem like uh, understanding people behavior but mm. what does it mean mm -hmm. Then you can uh, you, you think about that uh, and you realize that okay this is just predicting where people are uh, which exit in the underground they are choosing. This is simple, but there are uh, more complicated questions that can can be uh, translated into mathematical language. Right. Uh, and maybe, as you mentioned, there is something that is not possible to translate into mathematical mm. uh, formulas, and this makes a limitation for machine learning because what you need is some specific and precise definition of your problem. Mm. And yeah, we were mentioning noise earlier when you have data sets that you know do have a signal in them, hopefully, but generally the data can be kind of all over the place and it's very hard to make correlations and predictions from those. And obviously the application will determine your techniques for what models you use, um, maybe the way that you would modify the data before you process it. Of course, yeah. Pre-processing can be like the, one of the most mm. important uh, things that makes your, uh, your algorithm working. Mm. The same algorithm can work uh, perfectly if you just do some smart pre-processing of the data mm -hmm. and you but on the other side you can see uh, any uh, output if there is no pre-processing because some stupid element is just uh, mm -hmm. compromising everything yeah and generally when you're trying to deploy machine learning to solve a problem you put it into pipelines and pre-processing which is essentially cleaning the data, making it just better for the machine learning model to learn from, uh, that's a very important component of that. I mean, obviously, you get the data, you would clean the data if you need to. Um, then the model would train on the data, uh, which helps it learn from the data, make correlations, um, and there's several different models you can use uh, that, that use different techniques for this. And then you would validate the model, yeah. which is testing it to see, hey, does this actually work on my training data, which would be something like cross-validation. Um, remember, Google is your friend if you don't understand some of the things that we're talking about. And then from there, you would actually test the model on a data part of the data set that you never touched beforehand. Exactly. Um, otherwise, you get something called data snooping. Right. Yeah, when you try to predict what you know. Right, right. There's a lot of, you know, that's kind of hearsay in uh, machine learning. Um, so let's also talk about, you know, Python, for example, is a language that we use 
a lot in machine learning. Um, yeah, not only do we use it a lot, but it's also actually the language of choice for the machine learning module uh, for third-year computer scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, there are sometimes there are people who uh, compare the efficiency of using stuff called compiled code, where the instructions are uh, concrete and they are all laid out for the computer to follow really quickly, so it's more efficient in comparison to something like Python, which is what we call an interpreted language. That is, Python itself sort of reads line by line as it's running the code. Uh, So it's having to do uh, the figuring out what the code wants at the same time as it's running it, rather than just having a bunch of instructions and running with it. Now, the whole point of this is some people talk about how, well, compiled code is obviously faster. Why don't we use that for machine learning when we're using massive data sets? And um, one of the reasons why is because, and as I'm sure that Nicolo can uh, say as well, is um, we only run... Uh, particular data sets or particular criteria against data sets a few times and it's actually the time taken to create a quick and dirty as you will Python implementation uh, to do the machine learning is still quicker including the inefficiencies of the code than it would take to create the perfect super fast C++ or assembly version of that because as I said, you will only use it once or twice. Isn't that right? Y- yes, I, I think that the, the C++ or uh, <coughs> more sophisticated implementation can can come later. Yeah. And uh, at least in my experience, if you do some machine learning research, the research is more on how what is the, the best way to do something. And, and then you need to try lots of things, as you said. So uh, it's a trade-off between the time that the, the code n- needs to execute and the time you need to code. So mm. if t- just to, to write a loop, you, you need to, to type uh, like five lines and uh, for, uh, for C++. And, uh, like it's a lot bigger. <laughs> and two lines for Python. And since Normally, 80% of the time, this loop is not a good one. So you, you <laughs> this is just a, a waste of, of time. So I think that for the machine learner point of view, uh, Python is, is, is the best because it's simple enough, but also fast. You can find uh, libraries uh, doing already a lot of things. And the nice thing about Python is that uh, all the machine learning community, more or less, is uh, working with Python. So th- the communication, it's getting really, really easy. So you can just bring things, download things that uh, works immediately on your computer. You try, and again, 80% of the time, you, you don't need them, so you, you throw them away. And this is extremely fast. If everyone is just talking the same room, speaking mm-hmm. the same language. And, and it really lowers the barrier of entry um, because you know, you're know you coming from a theoretical physics background and you mentioned how understanding the math really helped you uh, apply these models. I mean, that's a very good thing, but realistically, if you're just getting into machine learning or computer science in general, 
just learning Python and using things such as scikit-learn uh, and NumPy, those are things that allow you to build these models without actually understanding what's happening. Um, exactly, because otherwise we'd have the whole issue of before anyone could actually get their hands uh, dig in to building these models, they'd have to understand things sort of like design patterns, yeah. threading, and it's a lot easier when that's taken care for you by something like Python in comparison to doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah. In, in physics, there is a, a similar uh, approach to math. Mm. Uh, this is a, an old fight between physicists and mathematicians because mathematicians want to, to understand everything about the math they are using and all the details and, and all the possible generalization, while physicists they have a problem and just use the math they need without uh, caring about all the possible uh, complications that mathematicians uh, mm -hmm. spend their life on. Yeah. And I think that this is the, the same. You don't need to understand everything about how your computer is computing something, but just do it. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, just to wrap up the show, let's talk about some of the things that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, this month is Cyber Awareness Month, which is great. Google it, and you'll find a great thing by uh, US CERT that talks about the things that you should do online to protect yourself. Uh, I believe their motto is own it, secure it, and protect it. Exactly, um, because even though October is a month dedicated to spooky stuff, you do not want to get a scare <laughs> from being hacked into. <laughs> so make sure you are aware and mm -hmm. go to the Cyber Awareness Month website. Some other things in the news, uh, NordVPN confirmed that it was hacked in March 2018. Apparently an unauthorized user accessed a loan server in the Finland data center that NordVPN was renting from an unnamed provider, which apparently didn't disclose, and they didn't disclose the hack, the, this unknown provider. Uh, but NordVPN has said that no username or passwords were intercepted. Why they didn't say anything for two years? Good question. Uh, it suspiciously coincides with a really heavy marketing push, so right. take that as you will. We then, also have iOS with um, their new, well not their new, there is a new exploit called Checkmate, which Apple is not entirely happy about, which affects models of iOS devices all the way from the iPhone 4S up to the iPhone 10. Uh, no mention of the iPhone 11 as of yet. But this has to do with the issue of building code into something, a part of a phone, which cannot be changed afterwards, which, while secure, means that if something goes wrong and there's actually a bug in there... In this case, there is. And in this case, there is. There is nothing you can do to get around that. So, that... Um, yeah, bad news for Apple. Fortunately, even though it is unpatchable, uh, the developer has said that it only works if your phone's tethered to a computer and it does not persist. So if you restart your phone, any damage done, fine. Well, that's it. Uh, thank you, Nicolo Colombo, for thank coming you, on the show. Uh, William Company, of course. Uh, and this is Comstock Radio. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>